Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I'm speaking with Mark A. Noll, the Francis McKinney Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame. His book, In the Beginning Was the Word, The Bible in American Public Life, published by Oxford University Press, is the topic of this show. Noll has given us a rich and deep examination of the place of the Bible, both as an object and source of ideas, in the public life of early America. He sets out to show the evolution of the colonial relationship with the Bible in the context of Christendom, anti-Catholicism, and the British Empire in which it was understood. Noel offers innumerable examples and references of New England as thoroughly immersed in scripture in which a broad biblicalism saturated the imagination, culture, and politics. Both fervent and lukewarm believers took the authority of the Bible for granted, providing analogies for interpreting immediate events, inductive instruction, and inspiration for a vast number of political and cultural projects. But the Bible was also a double-edged sword that could both unite and divide friends and foe. Noel teases out the often subtle differences in the views of the Bible that had significant political consequences. Dissenters and religious radicals believe that the Bible stood against Christendom and church establishment. Other issues were not only about the Bible itself, or whether it was a sole or final authority, but also who could read it and understand it. Slaves, women, and common people, under the sweep of revivals, increased literacy, and the tool of a versified text began to interpret the Bible for themselves, rather than to look to the clergy for guidance. This worked to undermine Christendom and created a uniquely American attitude towards the Bible. What remained was a providential rhetoric, that replaced the empire with the nation, and ongoing debates over scriptural mandates on the economy, slavery, and arguments for and against the revolution. Noel has demonstrated that it's virtually impossible to understand the colonial society without understanding the place, significance, and prominence of scripture in the private and public life. Here is my conversation with Mark Noel. Let me introduce you to the author, Mark Noel. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, the book that you have given us in the beginning was the word. I think it's one of your finest works in terms of death and significance, particularly for the history of American thought. But before we get into the book, and for those people who don't know you, tell us about your background, where you came from, and how you came to write in the beginning was the word. Sure, I, I'm happy to do that. Um, I've been interested all my adult life in how religion interacts with uh, political matters, interacts with um, social order, interacts with intellectual developments in North America, the United States and, and Canada, and to some extent also in the Europe and the UK in particular. Uh, the, the book that uh, is just published comes out of a long gestation uh, in the fall of 1971 with um, Nathan Hatch, who's now happens to be the president of Wake Forest University, 
we uh, schedule a small conference at Wheaton College called the Bible in America. And I wrote a paper uh, for that conference called something like the image of the Bible in the United States from the revolution to the Civil War. And that project more or less got me going in thinking about how uh, ubiquitous the scriptures have been in American history, but how little studied. So that was probably the intellectual side of why I was interested. I am myself a, a person of Protestant faith and allegiance, um, greatly affected in a positive way by my own interactions with the scriptures, but also greatly distressed in many ways by my own interactions, the interactions of people that I, I admire and like, and some of those I don't like. So personally and academically, studying the broader impact of the Bible, or the broader presence of the Bible, because sometimes it's an impact on other things, and sometimes the scriptures are impacted upon by developments in the broader sphere. Personally and academically, this project uh, is one that I've been thinking about for a long time, and the book is a result. I think if I had uh, had an opportunity to... Uh titled this book, I would have titled it A Double-Edged Sword. Well, yes. Because this is a this is what I see in your book. But before we get in, go that direction, you've written several highly regarded books, including The Excellent America's God. Why this book? I mean, it seems like, you know, America's God does a lot of work. What does this book do in terms of historically that that book did not do? Yes, a good question. Um, the, the volume that we're talking about today was intended to be about a 75-page introduction to the public use of the Bible in the 19th century. That topic I had addressed uh, at some length in America's God from Jonathan Edwards to Abraham Lincoln, particularly on the problem of Bible arguments concerning slavery. From the 1830s into the 1860s and actually beyond, there was a, just a terrific American controversy over whether the scriptures did or did not permit slavery. I treated that subject in the, within the context of quite a few other subjects, and it seemed like th this was a topic that, that had I'd only begun to work with. Moreover, once you get into the 19th century, um, the Bible in American public life is no longer an exclusively Protestant story, which it mostly is for the English colonial period. When Catholics, when Jews, when free thinkers, when, uh, when eventually, by the end of the 19th century, into the early 20th century, when people who uh, are adherents of other sacred books outside of the Western Christian tradition, when all of these come together in American life, you have situations of, of real complexity and that touch many aspects of American social, intellectual, political development. So for a long time, uh, actually even before the idea for the book, on, on theology and social life, I, I've been trying to figure out how, how it might be possible to write on the Bible and the broader developments in 19th century culture. But obviously, 19th century American culture comes out of the colonial and revolutionary periods, the constitutional periods. So that's where I started. But by the time I had 130 or 140,000 words, I thought this better come to an end and, and uh, be, the, be the opening door to what will be the, a more complicated and, and, and in some ways I think a, a, a harder book to write just because there will be so many different actors that are, will come into play. Now, when you, in your book, you start off uh, in the prelude talking about Christopher Columbus and the Spanish uh, Bible that came to the New World 
and then that you sort that set that up, but then you talk, begin to talk about the Bible really in England and put the context of the American thinking about the Bible within the context of the empire, Christendom, the, the shadow of the Reformation and uh, anti-Catholicism. There's a lot there to unpack because you, you take these themes and you kind of run them all the way through the book. So talk a little bit about uh, the English church, the Reformation, and what happened with the Bible in that period when we're going from William Tyndale to King James Version of the Bible. Yes, uh, the, the, chronologically, as you mentioned, the Catholics do come first. So Columbus is deep into the Bible. Bartolome de las Casas is deep into the Bible. Uh, the early Catholic officials in, in what becomes Mexico, New Spain, are deep into the Bible before there is a Protestant Reformation. But what will eventually have the greatest impact upon the American colonies, the 13 colonies become the United States, is very much tied into the Reformation of and the, the emergence of Protestantism in England, particularly Scotland to a little bit, Ireland to, to a little bit. So the English uh, Reformation of the 1530s and following is, is of course, directly related to the uh, Continental Reformation, which in this uh, almost 500th anniversary year, we're thinking about Martin Luther and the nailing of the 95 Theses on the door of the Castle Church at Wittenberg in 1517, and then the dramatic expansion of print, uh, the dramatic turn to the scriptures as a, as a uh, all-encompassing guide to life. So the English Reformation is the place in, in really American history where the Bible becomes central. It becomes central because of the general Protestant claim that Catholic Christianity has become hopelessly corrupt in large part because it abandoned its allegiance to the Bible. Now, obviously, the Bible remained a formally important place in Catholic uh, Christianity. My own sense, as a Protestant, is that Protestant critique of Roman Catholicism in the early 16th century failed to see how central the Bible remained in uh, mainstream Catholicism. Nonetheless, because of what were real problems in the Catholic Church and real strength in leaders like Martin Luther, turning to the scriptures as a way to attack those problems, the Bible, of course, becomes a great engine of Protestant expansion. England is pulled into that story when uh, Henry VIII decides in the early 1530s that he must have a, a new wife, he must set aside his Catholic uh, wife, Catherine, and uh, he maneuvers from the top down to break England from the Pope. At the same time, there is a, uh, a spiritual, an intellectual, a religious concern about reform that people like Wind William Tyndale are very much committed to. And that uh, reform bubbling up from below and Henry's uh, kingly royal decree that England is not going to be part of the papacy in the Catholic world anymore combines to begin the, the uh, Protestant Reformation in England. And for, for my purposes that will eventually lead to the main themes of this book, William Tyndale's translation of the Bible into English, 1525 and following, is absolutely critical for what comes in the English Reformation. His translation of the New Testament and parts of the Old Testament is never completed. He's actually executed before he's able to finish, this, uh, finish his Bible translation, but then the Bible translations are taken up by other people. The Bible becomes a major... Uh, a uh, new element in English uh, parish life and new Eng a new element in English cultural life uh, when 
the, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, Henry's right-hand man for political leadership, Thomas Cromwell, maneuver, sometimes in front of the king, sometimes behind the king's back, to complete a translation of the Bible by the 15, late 1530s that then is uh, a, a new gift to the parish churches of England. Henry is always a, a, a reluctant Protestant. Maybe maybe isn't even a Protestant at all, but he, he allows certain things to happen that put in motion a desire in many people to live more thoroughly by the Bible, and many of these people also will be criticizing the way in which the English state church has been operated on the basis of their understanding of Scripture. So what I try to do in the book is to explain how, um, in public life, authorization of translation, um, organization of the church, the Bible becomes an important uh, symbol of Protestant life in England, and at the same time, in personal lives, the Bible is becoming a, a, an inspiration, uh, a guideline, an anchor for people who will carry on reform in a Protestant fashion, whether Henry approves or not. So it, that's the beginning with Tyndale in the 1520s and 30s, but then um, the, the English political religious situation, of course, is, is very complicated. Henry dies. He, he, he is in a, in a conservative move himself, more back toward Catholic forms and Catholic procedures. But lo and behold, he, he uh, appoints Protestants to his Regency Council. And they're able to counsel, <coughs> they're, they're able to give counsel to Henry's one legitimate son, Edward, who is a sickly young man and for five or six years is all on board for systematic Protestant reform, including much more uh, availability of the scriptures. He dies, of course, and is succeeded by his older half-sister, Mary, who's Catholic and tries to bring England back to Catholicism. She reigns for only five years. She's succeeded by Elizabeth, who is sort of Protestant, but most concerned about her, her own standing. And there is this tremendous political, uh, 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 what should we say, it fits and starts. What's England going to be religiously? What's England going to do with its uh, uh, traditional Christendom arrangement that had linked church and state? Meanwhile, reformers who want to bring about systematic change following the Bible in parish life and the life of the country continue their work. Sometimes it's with the royal approval. Edward VI gives approval to people who are studying the Bible. Sometimes it's against royal approval. During Mary's reign, the most significant translation of the Bible before the King James Version into English is done in the city of Geneva, because that's where refugees, Protestant refugees from the Catholic Queen go. So, so you again have a, a really um, difficult, really complicated combination. It's a very of, complicated history that you you really explained it very well and try. I think you give us the essentials. And eliminate a lot of things that you could have, a lot of things you could have said, but you don't. And that's fine because we didn't need all that information. But what you yeah. gave it was great. Now, this, this, the, the relationship with the Bible here, uh, within, uh, Protestant Reformation in England is always couched in sort of an anti-Catholic ethos. Uh, and, and this is something that is brought over to the new world. That comes and also the idea of Christendom. Can you talk about a little bit about Christendom? We don't talk about it very much. I think a lot of people don't know what it is. Right. So, what is Christendom? What was it? Now, Christendom was the, the well-established assumption that since 
one God ruled over everything, everything in life had to be interrelated. So um, in, in the United States, we have a difficult time conceiving of Christendom because we're so used to the notion of the separation of church and state. The union of church and state is a really good example of Christendom in practice. So uh, the monarch is, is going to take uh, interest in the churches. The ch- major church leaders are going to be consulting the monarch. Uh, but it, it, the, the Christendom went m- much further. Uh, the the uh, widespread assumption was that law is based upon God's revelation. Uh, edu- higher education is is supposed to be thoroughly infused with uh, a religious character. For what comes in the United, what comes in the American colonies that lead to the United States is, is a is Christendom, but with variations. So. All of the colonies in the beginning of the 17th century are founded with, with a certain degree of, of, of awareness that in the, in the European Christian past, state and church, religion and society were thoroughly interwoven. By the time we get to the colonies, however, there are differences of opinion as to whether that's a good thing, how it should be done, whether, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. The colony of Virginia is a transplantation of Anglican Christendom. There's, there's a fair bit of Christian motivation behind the founding of Virginia, and its founders want to replicate in the New World what they've experienced in the 17th century uh, England. By this time, it's, it was a securely Protestant king, James, the sponsor of the King James translation of the Bible, and the the, the uh, Founders of Virginia want to have an Anglican state church that, that gives guidance to all of society. The next colonies, however, are different. The Plymouth Colony in 1620, Massachusetts in 1630, are formed by people who have resisted some aspects of English Christendom. And here we begin to get further complications. Well, you know, the thing that I notice here is, of course, is all these people are appealing to the Bible. Exactly. For, and, and coming up with different conclusions or different political, uh, yeah, ideas from the same Bible, which is the, what you co- continue to bring up in your book, how the Bible is used by different people for different ends. And everybody revers the Bible, thinks the Bible is the source of authority, but they extract different things from it. Right. And, and it's the Christendom background that means when different Protestants extract different things from the Bible, you have broad social consequences. So it, I don't want to say all because there must be some exceptions. But virtually all of the English colonists who come to America in the 17th century unite in their belief that the Bible gives us God's way to find reconciliation with him. The Bible gives us the best pattern for life in society. And they're all, all also agreed that the Catholics have really screwed up and we have to, as Protestants, do things the right way. So there's th- there is that uh, really broad uh, arenas of agreement. But how should you move then to correct what the Catholics had done wrong? That's an area of disagreement. Should we be content with the new state church arrangement under Queen Elizabeth on to King James that established at least a, a formal kind of Protestantism in England. Some of the colonists say, yes, that accords perfectly with the Bible. Some say, well, it's not too bad, but needs to be reformed further on the basis of how they understand God's word and scriptures. And others say, well, no, it's just terrible. 
we've taken only the first baby steps toward reform. If we really followed the Bible, we would reform things much further. The the group of Puritans that we often call the pilgrims who come to Plymouth in 1620 are uh, most disillusioned about how reform has gone. The Puritans who come to Massachusetts think that reform has not gone nearly far enough, but they're going to continue a very strong Christendom idea. They're going to set up Massachusetts and then New Hampshire, Connecticut, uh, eventually uh, the, uh, the New Haven colony. We're, they're going to set up these colonies with a Christendom intermingling of everything in one society, but they're going to get it right. They're going to follow the Bible exactly the way the Bible teaches. And for about a century, they do it. They escape the turmoil that overcomes England in the 17th century when you get varieties of Protestants who, who have uh, different views of the Bible and end up killing each other. So the English Civil Wars in the 16, beginning 1640, 1642 are in the background. And after that takes place in England, then the, the push to reform everything thoroughly by the Bible fades away. There's still a lot of people believing in the Bible as a way of, of reconciliation with God. There's still very strong belief in the Bible, but the idea that you can reform all of society by just getting the Bible right, that idea fades from England. It does not fade in the New England colonies for many, gen- well, two or three generations to, to follow. So you, you have unity in some Protestant beliefs in the 17th century colonies, but then you have great disunity as well. Now, the the ideas about the Bible being the the guide for public life and for all of life, you illustrate it in a way by giving us innumerable examples of how how much the the speech, uh, speech, everything people talked about, every idea, everything always was uh, seasoned with Scripture, quotes from Scripture, allusions to Scriptures, everybody using the Bible as, uh, a way to solve practical problems, not just, you know, abstractions. Right. It, it was, people would, uh, relied on it. This is what I found so interesting because we don't, we can't imagine a world where everyone is constantly referring to the Bible and you, you quote long passages where every other word is something taken out of the Bible, uh, as a way to support whatever the person is trying to say. Well, this, this phenomenon is, is what makes Colonial America is such a Protestant place, and you could say a kind of unitary Protestant, because everyone is looking to the scriptures for their guidance in life, and as you noted, for rhetorical purposes, for illustrations, for literary purposes, but it's also what creates the contentions. How are we going to put the Bible to use? So in in, uh, Massachusetts, um, in the 1630s, John Winthrop, the governor, asked the prominent minister, John Cotton, put together for us a... uh, 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 a, a body of law, or actually Winthrop is pushed by his the fellow lay leaders to do this. So they asked the minister, John Cotton, put together a body of law. He does. It, it, so in, in a, a work that he calls Moses's Judicials, Moses's way of organizing society. So there's there are there are uh, provisions for how the governor should be chosen, how his counselors should be chosen, and out in the margin, not always, but frequently are specific Bible references that supposed to get this right. Now, that proposal is not accepted in Massachusetts. It's a little bit too tight for the leaders. But what does come as the formally accepted 
platform of government for Massachusetts is something uh, almost uh, drawn up the same way, where periodically the, 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 the lawgivers will stop and say, if, if we haven't covered this subject adequately, then our recourse is back to the scriptures. Uh, Moses's judicials, John Cotton's work that was going to explain how government should be set up by following the strip scriptures strictly, is in fact adopted in New Haven as its governing charter until it's folded into the to the colony of Connecticut in, in uh, after the, the English uh, Revolution of the, of the mid seventeenth uh, century. So you you have uh, an an idea of the Bible as providing very explicit guidelines. Uh, it, actually, it's, it's pretty ferocious because in, in, in you know, actually all of the early Massachusetts uh, frameworks of government, there's a long list of capital crimes, and most of them are key to the capital crimes of the Book of Leviticus, which you don't think of as a as a um, as a book that or- organizes the details of contemporary life. But so thorough was the sense that the Bible corrects the errors of Catholicism, the Bible shows us how to be reconciled with God, the Bible shows us how to live, but that sense is just carried over in, into all of life, and in Massachusetts, Connecticut, eventually New Hampshire, it lasts into the 18th century. There's no, there's no sharp civil war like in England that will disabuse people of the idea that we should follow the Bible in all areas of life. What does begin to change is when there are other good Protestants who say, well, I'm following the Bible just as much as you are, but you have simply misread it. The early ones, Anne Hutchinson, Roger Williams in the 1630s and 1640s, are so eccentric that everybody just knows they're crazy. They can be put down pretty easily. But when you get respectable uh, Baptist leaders who say, well, you mostly have it right, but then you really misunderstand the relationship between parents and children. The Bible doesn't say that we should baptize our babies. The Bible says we should be baptized when we make our own statement of faith. This is the 1650s and 1660s. And eventually then there'll be, there'll be uh, people who say, well, we should organize our churches with more authority to the governing council of the churches uh, uh, taken together rather than the congregations. And they'll have their Bible References and and by the at, by the end of the 17th century, there is a beginning of the loosening of the idea that we can follow things closely, and you begin to back away from this idea that we can have a code of laws that, for example, is really just tightly uh, modeled on what we have in, in the uh, five books of Moses in the Old Testament. At the same time, however, the phenomenon that you drew attention to, the use of the Bible as rhetoric, as images, as daily speech, is deeply interwoven into the into the society, and that aspect is going to continue right through the 18th century, right into the 19th century, and in some ways, echoes of it, maybe even into the 20th century. Now, one thing you don't, I I don't recall you doing, maybe you touched on it, but you don't really talk a lot about how the Enlightenment uh, in the 17th century uh, affected how people viewed the Bible or how they would gauge other people's interpretation, or how reason comes into uh, how we read the Bible. Uh, do you have anything to say about that? Yes, uh, th- there is just a page or two, but it's not surprising that you might not have missed it, because there, it's no more than a, a page or two. You, you, you do find the educated leaders of colonial society by the 1690s on the 18th century 
know about the new ideas in Europe coming from people like Richard Simon in France, uh, Spinoza in, in the Netherlands, um, eventually uh, philosophes in 18th century France, who are saying, uh, with, with uh, you know, they're, they're speaking up and being heard in, in Europe, that the Bible really should be regarded more like all other human books. It's not, it might have some unusual religious or even supernatural aspects, but it's mostly a, a, a human book. And it should be studied as a human book. Reason is more important than simply trusting in uh, church traditions. Leaders of society, uh, grandson of John Cotton, Cotton Mather, is reading these books. And uh, he is very diligent in his own study to take the measure of these new ideas. His major project of his, of his adult life, very, he's a very energetic guy, very learned guy, was to do a kind of, what's well, not exactly a commentary, but a, 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 a Bible companion that eventually turned out to be millions of words long. He never got it published because no one would take it on. But he was responding to these Enlightenment ideas of, of, of the Europeans. Jonathan Edwards, who we think of as a, either a revival preacher or a very um, God-oriented theologian, is also reading these people. And he, he writes quite a bit about them. But mostly in the colonial period, uh, Americans are not uh, nearly as concerned about what we think of as the Enlightenment challenge to traditional views of the Bible as will take place when we get later in American history. By the time of the American Revolution, there are figures like Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, who have absorbed some of the Enlightenment attitudes towards Scripture and are much less traditional, much less willing to, to uh, question uh, traditional uh, belief, beliefs in the Bible. Tom Paine's a really interesting case. Uh, he, he will use the Bible as if he really believed it in a traditional way in his famous tract, uh, Common Sense, in 1776. But then 20 years later, in the 1790s, he writes uh, The Age of Reason, which is which is a pretty uh, down-and-dirty attack on all sorts of traditional Christianity, including belief in the Bible. So the, the, uh, the building blocks are there for what will become in the 19th century as pretty serious uh, American engagement. Although even in the 19th century, my own sense is that it's after the Civil War where there's really a broad American engagement with what at least learned Europeans have been discussing for 150 years or so. So I, the book tries to address the question, is American exceptional? I do not believe American exceptional in any kind of moral sense. I do believe it. you can say that its, it's history is unusual because in the Western world of, 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 of learning and ideas, it does maintain a more traditional understanding of the Bible for longer than most European countries. Um, colonial Christendom is sort of uh, kind of buried within the idea of the British Empire. So it, in what way, in what sense it legitimates the empire? It's part of the whole thing. Anti-Catholicism, the British Empire, Christendom, it's all kind of one thing. <laughs> Yes, and this, this actually, uh, um, I first thought about writing this book maybe as many as 30 years ago, but I'm really glad it only comes out now because I've been able to take advantage of, of a full generation of scholarship on how much the British colonies saw themselves as an outpost of, of Britain, particularly during the wars, beginning in the late um, 17th century warfare between Britain and France, and then the series of 
imperial wars in the 18th century, and there's one with Spain thrown in there for, for good measure. The, uh, the contrast between Protestant, liberty-loving, Bible-reading Britain and Catholic, supposedly tyrannical, supposedly Bible-abusing France is very, very strong. And, and you have uh, colonists right from the 1690s. So again, Cotton Mather, who wrote on everything, uh, became a terrific champion of Britain, Bible, liberty, as did um, uh, Benjamin Coleman from Boston in, in the 17-teens and 20s, as did, as did all sorts of people when we get to King George's War in the 1740s and the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War in the 1750s and 60s. Um, one of the really great challenges that people have taken up in general uh, 18th century American history is how, how do you get these people who are so enthusiastic for the king, so enthusiastic for British liberty, so enthusiastic for everything that's British, 1760, 61, 62, and then 15 years later they're saying, gosh, this isn't for us. We've got it. We've got to get rid of it. And, and uh, part of the answer is that, that uh, there's been a uh, – the, the type of British imperial mindset that has been so strong in, in the colonies has a very sharp uh, sense of what's politically – Good. And Britain is, and the Bible and liberty are associated with an opposition to tyranny, a, 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 a fear of concentrated power. And in the late 1760s, early 1770s, you, uh, the mindset of the colony shifts into say, well, you know, British liberty, British attachment to what's right in religion, British uh, orderliness in, in government is being threatened not by Papist France, but by the supposedly Christian mother country. And so you actually do find in the, in the mid 1770s when the, when the, when people are getting very hot and bothered about Britain's supposed oppression of the colonies, you, you begin to hear colonialists call Britain's Papist. You begin to see them using the language that they had used against France against Parliament and the, uh, and the monarchy. And that transformation is, is dramatic, but it grows out of this tremendous love, this tremendous identification that so many in the colonies have with Britain and the empire. And, and the Bible is then cr- crucial. Um, when Britain fights against France, uh, the, the sermons in the colonies almost all uh, line up British experience with the experience of God's people in the Old Testament. Same thing happens in the 1770s. The experience of Americans fighting against now the new tyrant is lined up with the experience of God's people in the Old Testament. So the same pattern that was used when, when the colonists were intensely loyal to Britain is the pattern that we see in the 1770s when loyalty to Britain turns aside. Okay, I'm going to... Change gears here a little bit to uh, what happens with the Bible, with uh, the the revivals, the Great Awakening or Awakenings, right. Um, right. and which are really sort of uh, the reverberations from the Reformation, having a vernacular Bible, everybody having the Bible and being able to read it for themselves, and this has huge consequences in America when uh, the Bible is easily available for anyone. Talk a little bit about what how this shifts not only the political situation, the way people the relationships of the Bible, 
relationship to the church and church authority and relationship to the political life when everyone has the Bible. Yes, this the, 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 the real complication in narrating the story I'm trying to narrate is that this, at the same time that American colonists are getting deeper and deeper into their adherence to the British Empire is this very period when, <clears throat> when revivals are taking place which have the consequences that you just mentioned. The, the leading <clears throat> revivalists so the Jonathan Edwards in, in uh, New England, the, the great itinerant George Whitfield who comes from Britain to the American uh, colonies seven different times, <clears throat> they're not politically, political revolutionaries. They're not church revolutionaries. They're, they're, they're uh, people in pretty good standing of the established churches. But their message is very much a message of individual appropriation of Christianity and in their Protestant terms, that means individual appropriation of the Bible. So although uh, the, the Bible as the book of lay men and lay women is characteristic of, actually before Protestantism, but, but with a new emphasis in Protestantism right from the early 16th century, it's in the 18th century in the American colonies when the very strong message of needing to be born again personally uh, be- becomes a driving force of religion on the ground. Now, you asked the question not too long ago about the Enlightenment. My own broader interpretation is that, in some sense, the individualization of religion in the 18th century is a kind of religious counterpart to the uh, stress on the individual in the Enlightenment. People have talked about the invention or discovery of the individual, and what we have with the revivals is that Enlightenment development actually being now put to use in, in, in a uh, religious vein. So I, I have uh, sections in the book, and it could have been multiplied without number, where you have lay people, lay women, as well as lay men, even some Native Americans, eventually African Americans, who because they have been uh, reoriented as persons, because they have experienced God's grace personally in their lives by personal appropriation of the scriptures don't don't necessarily set out to um, challenge authority, don't set out to challenge the way things are in church and state, but inadvertently almost end up doing that. Or, or the, the structures of Christendom that are being strengthened at the same time by these imperial wars are being weakened by what we might call, and others have called, the democratic implications of revival preaching that appeals to each person, you must decide for God or against God. Now, how do you, how do, you do that? How, how, do you, how do you find out what needs to be done? You must be reading the Bible for yourself. You must be studying the scriptures on your own. You must internalize the Bible's message for yourself. So it's like there's, you've got two theologies uh, going together. The uh, theology that's coming from above, which is the church authorities and uh, those people, and then there's a theology that is being for, formed at the ground level. Right. And, 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 and they're, they're going to come into a, some sort of a clash. With no, they're not, yes. They're not, they're not perceived as contradictory, but there certainly is a, um, a democratics, maybe not quite the best word, because it doesn't necessarily spill over in, into uh, overt politics, but something like a democratic appropriation of religion for people who are deciding for themselves. And when that um, spirit 
takes root in, or that, that seed takes root in religious life, uh, there, I don't think it necessarily causes what happens in, in uh, political life, but there is a kind of context in which um, mistrust of concentrated authority, mistrust of directions from the top, that spirit then is broadened out by the revival at the same time that in the imperial wars there's a different spirit being communicated from on, on high. I think that that is one of the most interesting uh, sections of your book, right there. Well, it's less interesting for me, me to try to, and it's the 1740s and the 50s, because uh, it's long before there's any kind of notion of uh, political revolt, uh, and it is, is a time when people are concerned about renewing religious life in the churches. Church decay, church formalization probably was not as bad as, as leaders thought, but it was, there was some, certainly some decay, some, some formal religion, and the idea that religion should be personal, should be lively, should be animated, and should be guided by what people heard in sermons from the Bible and then read for themselves or in talking amongst themselves came up with. So again, you have that every... Automatically, that automatically challenges any authority, that uh, human authority. It already yes. sets up a suspicion. Well, either that or, or just an indifference. So I have got, uh, I, I, I'm drawing very heavily upon a really fine book by Catherine Breckis on a, a lay woman in Newport, Rhode Island, Sarah Osborne, who is deeply involved in the religion of the awakening. She has, in effect, memorized the King James Bible. Very tragic episode in her life where her, where her one son, as a young man, is ill. And she records in her diary her her response to this illness and eventually his death. And it's basically uh, every every third sentence is, is a sentence quoted out of her memory from the scriptures. She goes on to be a very well-respected woman in Rhode Island. She organizes Bible, we would say today, Bible studies, Bible uh, groups in her home that uh, sometimes men come to listen to her. Now, she's not out to be a radical She's not out to, dis- to disturb the order. She, she's committed to this religious way of life, and it does have these implications. Later in 17, see the late 1750s or 1760s, there's another kind of revival in Newport that affects the, the slave and free black population. And these people come to her house and listen to her uh, expound on the, on the Bible, and they talk about the Bible. No, she's not setting out to disturb authority, but to have a, a, a single or as she's married, actually, but to have a lay woman entertaining in her home men and black men and women is socially disruptive, or at least potentially. And it's that dynamic carried out with her indifference, but obviously moving in a, in a, a new direction for society and politics as well. So this has implications, of course, for the American Revolution or for the fermenting revolutionary spirit. Right. And, and what um, certainly one of the real benefits I've had from trying to read the good scholarship on the revolution is that you, you have these different levels of resentment to Britain. You, you do have a colonial elite who says these, these British are trying to tyrannize over us, but then you also have a, a, a colonial plebeian or, or common people who say, well, yes, they, they are trying to tyrannize over us, but very soon they'll also be saying, well, we don't want a new set of of people in the colonies. So you do get um, you know, some pretty radical 
state constitutions, 1775, 76, 77, yearly elections, uh, governors with no power. And, and uh, what happens in the 80s, and there's a, there's a little bit of a step back from that in the coming of the Constitution. But the, 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 the uh, authority that people have when they're convinced that the message of the Bible has spoken to them is an authority that comes from a long tradition, way back to, I mean, actually before the Reformation, but certainly strongly enunciated by the leading reformers, by the leaders of Protestantism in Britain, that strong sense that the Bible empowers me to, to, find, to be, get right with God eventually spills over into a sense that what empowers me to get right with God might empower me to stand up against tyranny in society as well. And whether, whether I mean, I'm not so sure that there was that much tyranny from Britain. There was some. But whether, whether the sense is there that what has made me uh, acceptable to God, what has given me purpose in life as an individual and in my understanding of the scripture, then that understanding of scripture and reliance on scripture can be put to use for broader social and political purposes. Okay, after the revivals, you talk about, you have a couple of chapters where you talk about the, the relationship to the, the Bible deepens and then it also th- it's thinned or absorbed. Can you talk about those those three sort of aspects of what happens to the Bible? Right. So, so the, this was an effort to, to um, push past the ubiquity of Scripture in rhetoric and in writing and, and references. What, so this, this is probably uh, a question having to do with more of my own interest. When are people turning to the Bible actually to try to learn something from it, to follow its guidance? When are they putting it to use for their own purposes? And in the deepening chapter, I focus on uh, primarily African-Americans or African Britons, uh, who uh, are, are caught up to one degree or another in the religion of the revival and, and find uh, a Bible-based Christianity empowering in a way that a church-based Christianity had not been. So earlier in the colonial period, there's a lot of serious effort to preach to blacks, to Christianize blacks, to actually do the right thing for blacks, but, but with with, but, but with a, uh, a picture of Christianity that's folded into the church-state uh, relationships of, of British Christendom. What we have with the traveling preachers of, of the revival, the freeing up of Scripture to, to lay person to lay person is, is the beginnings, a trickle of, uh, of African Christianization, African-American conversion that then becomes a steady stream by the late 18th century. And the remarkable thing to me is that, and again, this is a book about the public presence of the Bible, so it, it couldn't be too long already. It couldn't really get to the private use. But the very first publications by African Americans and Britons, and then on almost all the publications, and they're not too many, but in the rest of the 18th century, the Bible without Christendom is absolutely central. So you have two men, I don't think they're related, by the name of Hammond, who published the first works ever by, we'd say, African-Americans in 1760. One is a Connecticut slave by the name of Britton Hammond, who, who relates a, 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 an adventure. He he's sails to Cuba. He's taken captive. He's in, he's in the British Navy. He's all over the world. He comes back. But his, his drama is about himself, and he uses Bible language. Jupiter Hammond, a slave in, in New York, in Long Island, publishes a poem, long poem, uh, on Christmas, 1760. It's all about salvation from God. It's 
filled with Bible references, nothing political. It's obvious that, that a religion of the Bible and persons is getting through to slaves in the way that a religion of Bible in Christendom had not. And then by the 1770s, 80s, you get at least five or six, seven or eight more uh, individuals from whom the, the message of the Bible is obviously going deeper, but it's not so much connected to the political sphere. On the other side of the story, um, I, I, I show, I try to show in the, the chapters mostly in the 18th century that various dominion the domains in colonial life for the majority society, the Bible is present rhetorically, but not really in any kind of substantive way. So I, I think it's that way almost for political theories. You have British oppositional politics that people will dress up with a Bible language, but it's really the oppositional politics that are basic. You have developments in, in what's called the new moral philosophy or, or uh, ways of thinking about uh, larger problems of, of uh, what we would today call science or, or ethics, pretty much without any without too much explicit Bible teaching. Economic life. Uh, no, nobody's asking about whether the Bible approves of in, inequality of incomes or, or uh, some of the things that people are worried about today. Uh, the economy in the colonies is part of what Britain does. What Britain does is good because it's against France and for liberty and for the Bible and for freedom. And then I think that the most interesting uh, uh, terrain to me is slavery and race. There are in Puritan New England, into the very early years of the 18th century, some Puritan writings that are, you can tell people are nervous about slavery uh, they, they, they don't quite know what to do with that. But then from very early in the 18th century until 1770, there's just a, a, a silence about what the Bible might say concerning the enslavement of black people, about the, the relationship of the races, and it's conventional wisdom that prevails. One exception are the Quakers, at least three or four, five maybe, Quaker authors who challenged slavery in, this, in the 18th century with a lot of Bible references to specific passages, the New Testament, for example, and the Old Testament also condemns man-stealing, kidnapping. Um, the, the, the Quaker publicist, the mid-18th century, John Woolman and uh, uh, Anthony Benizet, both said, how, how can people be followers of Jesus? And then they list all sorts of commands and, and things from the Gospels. How can they be followers of Jesus and then sell human beings and treat them like slaves? But they're Quakers who are sort of eccentric and on the outside, and nobody pays any attention to them. It's not until the early 1770s when, the, for political reasons, the colonists are beginning to complain about Parliament tyrannizing them that you begin to get systematic attention to slavery and race on the basis of the Bible. So the, the, Brit, the Philadelphia physician Benjamin Rush publishes an abolitionist tract, 1772 or three. A lot of scripture in it. But then immediately you get a response by, it, it, it works published in, in the colonies, but by slave owners in the Caribbean and then slave owners in Britain, slave owners in America say, no, look, um, Moses in his legislation told the people of Israel how they should take care of their slaves captured in battle. They say uh, Israelites have to be freed from slavery, but the captives can be passed on to your children. Look, Abraham had slaves. In the New Testament, Jesus condemns all sorts of evil. He never condemns slavery. 
The Apostle Paul tells slaves to obey their masters. The Apostle Paul in the book of Philemon sends an escaped slave back to his master. How can you say that the Bible condemns slavery? Well, the interesting thing, I mean, there's many interesting things. The substance is, of course, greatly interesting. But when do these discussions begin? They begin when colonists are complaining about parliamentary restriction of colonial liberty. Because because, uh, slavery is a trope for all kinds of political tyranny. Exactly. And, and, And it's when people stop and say, well, does the trope apply literally? And... Uh, the, a few Quakers had done that, and a few of the Puritans had done that, but the mainstream society had not done that for almost 60 or 70 years. And there are quite a few people that began to do it in that period, but then actually by the early 19th century, it begins to fade again for another 25 years until that same discussion comes back with real vengeance and real intensity beginning about 1830. Now, you've mentioned the, rev- the revolutionary rhetoric a little bit, but... Uh and mostly when we talk about revolutionary arguments, they're always like four. We don't talk as much about the fact that there were lots of people who were saying, no, that the, the Bible uh, will condemns this rebellion. Right. So yes. let's talk a little bit about the, yes. those people, the loyalists. Well, it, it, I mean, it, it's true in almost all big um, conflicts like the revolution through American history. The winners get to write the history. The losers have to go home. Uh, there, there is um, there, there's a significant minority of public, and they're all, let's see, I think they're all men in the mid 1770s who say, look, uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13 said, the powers that be are ordained by God. You must, you have to obey the powers. The in the Epistle of uh, uh, First Epistle of Peter, there, there are very uh, straightforward injunctions. Uh, obey God, honor the emperor. How can people who supposedly follow the Bible not take these seriously? And, and it, I mean, I had read Tom Paine's Common Sense actually several times, but until uh, it was pointed out to me in, in a good spate of recent scholarship, uh, Tom Paine takes on that argument. A good healthy portion of common sense, the track that really was influential in pushing colonists to break with Britain very early 1776, a good portion of that track is his presentation of the story in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when Israel asked for a king, and the prophet Samuel, and then channeling the, the word of God, says, this is a terrible thing for you to do, if you ask for a king, all these bad things are going to happen. Now, what I hadn't known is that there were responses. And uh, I detail the, the writings of two individuals, Charles Inglis, who was the rector of Trinity, now Trinity Church Wall Street in, in New York City, and William Smith from Philadelphia, who was the, 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 the chief person at what becomes the University of Pennsylvania. They write extensive rebuttals, and they say, pain. You, you, you don't understand the Bible at all. And they, they're, they're much longer. Uh, Smith is a series of newspaper articles. Um, um, English does a complete track. And they're, they're quoting, uh, all sorts of passages from the Bible, from the Old Testament. They say, well, what Samuel meant is when Israel asked for a king like the kings in the ancient Near East who were tyrants. They didn't mean, there was nothing wrong when David became the king. 
God liked David. So they, they have <laughs> extensive arguments. But nobody pays any attention. So Inglis is, uh, he's in New York until the British have to evacuate New York. Uh, Smith in Philadelphia is silenced. And, and these arguments uh, are flying in the face of the, the political headwinds, and they, they just don't go anywhere. But they're there. Where do you think that your book will be useful? How would you like your book used? And, and, and on top of that, do you, are you planning a second volume to go into the 19th century? Well, if I live long enough and I can handle the complexity, I really do want to do the 19th century volume because you then get non-Protestants, you get more different kinds of Protestants, you get uh, uh, actually more debates than just does the Bible sanction slavery. I think my, I mean, the ideal uh, result would be twofold. I'd, I'd like to have historians who may or may not have a personal interest in religion realize how deeply interwoven into colonial life religious matters were, and then specifically the Bible. But so so that and, and then but then the interpretive question for historians is what does that mean? It's, it's not automatic or obvious what that means. Um, if 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 I conclude, if, if I convince people, and I'm I'm working on the basis of really fine scholarship by people like Vincent Coretta and others who've worked hard on uh, African Americans, African Britons, if I'm able to show on the basis of their work and my reading of the documents that a uh, a kind of spiritual Bible without much connection to Christendom was really important for African Americans and to a lesser extent Native Americans. What does that mean about their place in colonial society? Uh, it's the same with the, the questions of, of uh, colonial involvement in, in the empire. How, how when we see the, the deep uh, religious angles, the deep religious commitments of colonial British identification how do we change our understanding of what that imperial identification meant? So those are, and then the revolution too. Should should uh, when someone like uh, John Allen takes a passage from the Book of Micah and, and uses it to explain why colonists should revolt, and the thing is republished almost as many times as common sense, what what should that do to, to uh, tell us about the, the revolution? So there's historical questions, and then there are contemporary ones, and and. Uh, I'm a, a deep believer that uh, people of faith should should express their uh, political and social views in public. But I'm also a deep believer that they need to do it with discretion, reserve, caution, and most of the traits that seem to be lacking on every side of political debate. And so, uh, people who claim that uh, we live in, that the United States was founded as a clearly Christian nation, people who claim that the Constitution was godless and the revolution was mostly secular, I think they just need to stop arguing and actually do a little history and find out that there's no simple statement that will, uh, that you can extract from the founding of the United States that will solve moral political problems in the present. There might be some Hints, there might be some guidance, there might be some encouragement, and actually I think there might be encouragement on several sides of contemporary issues. But if you really got into the history, you'd realize that the complexity of the past makes it impossible to make quick and dirty, partisan, polemical um, uses or abuses of religion in, in, in present discussion. So I, I'd like to see... <laughs> I mean, this is this is kind of the fantasy world that some of us live in. But I'd like to see a, a calmer, 
more historically informed discussion of contemporary uh, controversies, not that that would necessarily bring about resolution, but would actually be on a sounder intellectual and moral plane than in our current shouting matches that pass for political discourse. So uh, what are you working on now? This is my final question. What are you working on? It's the 19th century. So just just this morning I was um, trying to sort through the Bible passages that were used in the celebratory and, and the commemorative um, um, sermons, and when, well, not all sermons, when George Washington died, when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, when James Garfield was assassinated, William McKinley was assassinated. There are tons of sermons published, tons of reports in newspapers about people going to church at these times. What were the Bible passages that they were referring to? For Washington, it was almost exclusively the Hebrew Scriptures. He was Moses. He was Samuel. He was one of the judges. For Abraham Lincoln, mostly that way, but for Garfield and certainly for McKinley, it's a lot more references out of the New Testament. Now, what does that mean? I don't know yet, but uh, I, I, I want to try to figure this out. So I have to try to do, push this story at least into the early 20th century. And I think if I could do that before I died, I'd be grateful. Well, thank you, Mark. And thank, thank, thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. Drop me a line at newbooks.americanstudies at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger. <laughs>